Hey folks, welcome back. This is Andy with the Poor Proles Almanac. You can find us on Spotify, iTunes, and wherever you get your podcasts. And you can find us on Patreon if you'd like to help us cover the costs of hosting the podcast. We don't explicitly offer any of our traditional content focused on the specific goals of this podcast to our Patreons in terms of limited or early access or anything like that right now. Knowledge is for everyone, but we have started up a Patreon-only mini-series called The Prologues, during which we will do some critiques on various peripheral subject matters and talk about those things not only from an intersectional lens, but also within the context of this podcast, Societal Collapse and Reconstruction. Thank you so much to our Patreons, Sam G, MJ Wallace, Jerbear205, Lucas G, Little Fox, Ember Limerence, Eric G, Kenneth H, Elizabeth C, John R, Matt C, Nathan M, and Hadley P. Special thanks to Sam G, one of our first Patreons, and also the only patron at the Based Chad status. So, thank you, sir. You are a Based Chad. You guys are absolutely amazing, and there are no words to describe how much we appreciate what you do. For the rest of you, here's a quick clip of what we're doing over in the Patreon-only section. Um, so there, there's this cognitive dissonance that happens in these conditions, and, and that's frightening, but we also need to be aware of it and to put and to contextualize a lot of these conversations about like what a world looks like after collapse. I mean, personally, you know, having studied history and looking at things like horrible things that happened like Deer Island, and also being a comedian whose thoughts run slightly darker, I personally hope to not live through a collapse. Like, I think that's my plan. Yeah. <laughs> if you're interested and you're willing to donate $2, it's up on our Patreon. Further, we're going to be putting out some stickers pretty soon. We're just waiting for the first batch to come in, and that's going to be something available only to our patrons. So go check it out. Now, we don't want people who can't afford to donate give us money for content. So if you are really interested in the content, just reach out and we'll work something out. And while we really do enjoy making this content, there's about 20 hours worth of work that goes into each episode, so any support we can get to offset our actual costs, we fully and wholeheartedly appreciate, so go check us out on Patreon. As of this episode, the running Google Doc that we have is over 300 pages, if you want to put some context for the work that goes into these episodes. Each episode clocks into around a 17-page essay, plus the stuff I add while chatting about various subject areas that pops into my head. So if you guys remember writing papers back in school, even on a subject you're passionate about, it's still a massive amount of work. And we do it because we know it needs to be done for all of you out there who are nervous about what's going on across the planet. So, yeah, if you throw us some support, whether it's through donations, referring us to friends, coworkers, random people on the street, whoever, we appreciate it. We will be having our first guest in the next episode, and we've chatted about that a bit in previous episodes, so you're probably familiar with Nash Flynn, who will be talking to us about the Troubles, the 40-year history of the Irish Civil War. And with that, we have been growing fairly consistently, and that's pretty much entirely to the work you do by giving us reviews and telling other folks about us. 
We'd like to think what we're doing is unique and valuable, and our hope is that we can present the current challenges facing the planet in a new light that gives us hope and a sense of liberation through understanding how we can individually and collectively make meaningful change. Lastly, we are on Instagram and Facebook if you want to follow us over there. We don't just post updates about the show, but we incorporate leftist and ecological history, as well as some foraging, hunting, and botanical knowledge we find interesting, as well as sometimes the stuff that we're up to. And, of course, we've got memes. And if this is your first episode, we highly, highly recommend going back to the first episode of the podcast and catching up, since each episode springboards from the previous content. Initially, this week I had planned to cover P.A. Yalman's scale of permanence as a framework, so we would be able to place a lot of the things we have discussed into context and priority. After thinking about it a little bit further, I decided before we got to that scale of permanence, it made more sense to think about contextualizing our conditions from a historical perspective. Further, in my opinion, being able to read the landscape around you is a crucial skill whether or not you're actively farming as it impacts foraging, hunting, and fully appreciating nature as you hike or whatever you're doing. The primary text that I'm drawing from, Reading the Forested Landscape, written by Tom Wessels, is a jewel that I highly, highly recommend buying because it is a book I can go back to and read time and time again because of its seemingly never-ending supply of new information and its wonderful writing style. He also has a field guide that pairs with the text, entitled Forest Forensics, which you can toss in your bag on a long hike. The classic text, which is probably the foundation from where this came from, is May Watts' Reading the Landscape of America, which is another great book, but is less focused on just the natural world, but the relationships between colonial history and the natural world. Now, either way, Wessels and Watts articulate the need to understand our natural world in a way our distant ancestors once did, and how understanding these conditions, not only can we appreciate the world around us and bring it to life as a dynamic, evolving ecosystem, but in a way that can help us understand a site we may be looking to manipulate. Why is understanding the history of a landscape important? Here, in the eastern coast of the continent of North America, 95% of the landscape has been altered by human activity for timber, crops, grazing, housing, or industry. These different practices have different impacts on the land in terms of the topsoil depth, past chemical usage, and the general landscape topography, and that's not accounting for other major impacts on the site, such as major floods, hurricanes, tornadoes, mudslides, and fires. On a smaller scale, reading the landscape can tell us how to identify the history of the landscape by paying close attention to the various indicators of the history of the landscape, such as standing deadwood, stumps, rotting logs, coppiced trees, and much, much more. Not only is being able to read the landscape important for us as land managers and stewards, but it further ties us deeper and more personally with the landscape as it bears its history to us in a way we're not used to and in a way that entangles the human history with the landscape. There's so much to learn from the natural world around us if we only listen. And while I have no expectations that this episode will prepare you to head out 
and understand the entire landscape around you, I do believe a few nuggets will likely deposit somewhere in your memory, and on your next hike, you may notice a thing or two that helps you appreciate the landscape more than you had the day before. And if that happens, I've succeeded in this episode. While it would seem at first this episode belonged earlier in the podcast, without understanding some of the basic functions of the soil, forest succession, and so on, this episode wouldn't make a lot of sense. Plus, I feel it would operate as a good segue into the scale of permanence. After all, how can we think of permanence without considering where we have been? In Tom Wessel's book, he gives us snapshots of the woods and walks through the unique characteristics that we can quickly identify to start being better readers of the landscape. Instead, I want to walk through some of the history of farming on colonized lands and how those create different impacts on the soil. And from there, talk about common things you'll see on your hikes and what they indicate. Ultimately, by being able to do this, we can not only contextualize the history of the landscape around us in a way that ties it to our history, for example, following the history of a tree that once stood during the Revolutionary War that was blown down during the biggest storm of the century, which you can tell by seeing a clump of trees in a certain arrangement. It's pretty cool to be able to do it, and it's really not that hard. For most people, when you go on your first hike, the first thing you notice when you're walking through the woods is tree size. As people looking to read the landscape, we also should be looking at the trees as well and notice whether or not they're the same size, or are they a mix, or are there a few very large trees and then smaller trees, nothing really in between? We had covered in the forest succession episode a bit about the first trees that occupy a forest. And as the ecosystem evolves, they give way to the slower-growing, longer-living trees. For most of the United States, these slower-growing, longer-living trees are some variety of oak. A general rule, and again, this is really general, is to take the diameter of the oak and multiply it by between 4 and 5 to estimate the age of the tree. White and red oaks grow at different speeds, so that's why I say 4 or five, or maybe in between, and I don't want to get too bogged down in that detail because if this is something you want to do, you can just go look up what's called the growth factor of any tree, and that'll give you the number to use. The higher the growth factor number, the slower the tree grows. For every foot diameter an oak tree is at breast height, the height you generally measure a tree's diameter, the tree is about 50 years old. So if a tree is around three feet in diameter, it's likely close to 150 years old. So if you go back to that tree succession episode, those first succession tree species grow more quickly. So even if you don't know the growth factor of those specific species, by knowing where they fall in that succession, we can estimate where first succession species are generally between two and three and a half. So while a white oak tree that's three feet in diameter might be 150 years old, the three-foot diameter aspen right next to it might only be 60 or 70 years old, which would mean that when the aspen started growing, the oak was already two feet in diameter. And that's the major difference that can happen from just having a little bit of a different growth speed. So hopefully that makes sense. We can identify the stage of succession the forest is in by the species composition from the forest succession episode, and now we can appropriately age the trees. But let's talk about the clustering of some of the trees. You're probably familiar with the term coppicing at this point if you've been listening to the podcast for a bit, but if not, 
The idea of coppicing is when a tree is cut down to a stump and new trees come up from that same root ball. While this happens when you cut down, say, an oak tree, it also happens naturally if the tree is diseased or gets hit by lightning or if a fire runs through the landscape or anything, really, as long as the roots survive. And, of course, if the tree is a variety that can coppice. So what this means is that sometimes these trees may appear as though they are three separate, closely growing trees, and it takes some digging, sometimes quite literally, to find the outline of the original stump. The giveaway typically for identifying coppiced trees is that they will form a semicircle pattern, and if you know the species that do it, that helps narrow that down pretty quickly. Usually when new sprouts shoot up from a stump, up to 25 shoots will spring out of the ground, and they generally start to shrink as they get bigger, and at most usually six might remain. Of course, that's without human intervention and repeated coppicing. These trees, even if they are a foot or more apart, are still essentially the same tree from the same root ball from the same original tree. Because they have that original root ball, they can grow more quickly, now, when looking at the forest, like I said, you'd look for some evidence that would show some kind of different mix of age of trees. If there appears to be, say, a bunch of 100-year-old trees and a bunch of 15 to 20-year-old trees, there's a clear gap of trees by age. This is called discontinuity. This happens for one of two reasons. The growth of a young forest or the disturbance of an old forest. Generally, in young forests, as the canopy closes, their dense new shade keeps new species from springing forward until the new canopy begins to either weaken from storms or the branches start dying off, allowing more access to the ground for the sunlight. Further, as the weaker canopy trees from this early succession forest start to die off, new gaps are created where new species can take advantage of the limited sunlight. Typically, slower growing and more shade tolerant species like oak spring up. And of course, those trees are slower growing. This young forest is clearly divided because of that first initial push towards sunlight, and it can take up to a century before these divisions become less clear. When we look for evidence of disturbance in an old forest, our first focus should be in regards to the age gap that is missing. Were there any fires that might have destroyed these trees when they were saplings? Are there basal scars, that is, scars along the bark at the base of trees, to suggest a fire had taken place? What about standing deadwood? Standing deadwood can be indicative of a pest that may have wiped out a specific species, which may have been one of the main varieties for a specific age group of trees. Standing deadwood doesn't even have to be standing. When we say standing deadwood, we mean trees that died standing up. The interesting thing about these trees is that they typically have certain markers that separate them from, say, a tree that fell in a storm. The wood will dry slowly the way firewood might. The bark will fall off and expose the bare wood. So when a downed tree lays on the ground barkless, that bark fell off before the tree fell on the ground. Further, by assessing the tree's size, you can quickly surmise whether or not it could have been impacted by wind. If the tree has come down, generally the trees taken down in storms are those in the upper canopy. If the tree in question is, say, 50 years younger than the canopy, it's highly unlikely it was ever part of that canopy. We can look back to the coppice trees, knowing that they grow more quickly. Is it possible those trees' original trunks could have been damaged by the same event that wiped out the specific age group that's missing? 
suddenly we're starting to see the story of the landscape take place. Going back to the idea of discontinuity, where else is there most obviously going to be discontinuity? In an abandoned field, there's some easy ways to figure out where abandoned fields once stood. Generally, most fields maintain some trees for shade for livestock. These trees, grown with no competition, spread their branches far and wide to take in the sun's rays. Not only can they increase the amount of sunlight the tree receives as quickly as possible, but it also shades out any competitors from springing up from below. Unlike trees competing for the top of the canopy, these field trees are wide-branched and likely at least 75 years older than the young trees shooting up around it. With white pines, however, the trees will rarely grow straight up if they're the only tree in a field. It will often look like a hand reaching up from the ground with fingers going into the sky. White pines are affected by the white pine weevil when there's full sunlight on the terminal shoots, where the larvae will grow and kill the terminal shoot. The whorls, that is, that cluster of branches that all circle at the same height, will all try to replace this leader shoot that was killed, and oftentimes multiples of those will survive, creating many shoots running towards the sky from the base of the tree. So what we can do is tell by how many whorls were before that division where the shoot changes, and that's how old that tree was when it was the tallest tree in a field. Sometimes that can be 5 feet, sometimes that might be 20 feet, but it gives us a good sense of the history of that landscape whenever you see the damage done by the white pine weevil. So if we're looking at an abandoned field, what else can we learn about it that will help us understand its history? Well, fields are cleared for three main reasons. Grazing animals, growing grass or hay, and growing intensive crops. Each of these will have different treatments for the farmers, and we can identify them in how the landscape is left after it rewilds. The first and most obvious thing to look for is evidence of a rock wall. These rock walls were not to define property boundaries necessarily, but a place to dump the rocks from plowing. If you're able to find the walls themselves, those can give you some key clues to how intensively the land was worked. The smaller the rocks, the more intensive farming was done, and smaller rocks, say fist-sized or smaller, are indicative of things like vegetable farming. As anyone that lives in a cold climate knows, it doesn't matter how many times you've cleared the land, new rocks keep showing up. Farmers have always had this challenge, and clearing out the smaller rocks is more important for those more intensive agricultural projects, like growing vegetables. To go back to those walls, despite seeming as though these ancient-looking rock walls have existed since the time of the colonists, it wasn't really until the early 19th century that these rock walls became prevalent. Prior to that, zigzag fences littered the landscape, along with stacks of stumps that were used to keep animals in or out of a property after they had logged the site. Obviously, wood rots, so evidence of these older pasture and field markers are long gone. And if there's no wall to be found, it becomes less likely to identify it if it was farmed for hay or vegetables, but usually it won't be hard to identify former pasture. The reason for this is actually pretty simple. Pasture land was typically the land that couldn't be used for other agricultural projects. It was often poorer soil, the land was less flat and usually had boulders and things like that, so it made more sense to let animals work on it. 
Now for us reading the landscape, you'll notice that the land is less flat because of the lack of plowing and manipulation, and after the land was eventually overgrazed because that's the history of pretty much modern agriculture, species like junipers tend to show up because they do well in poor nutrient full sun locations. So if you're seeing some dead shrubby thing that looks like it was once some kind of weird bushy pine, that's a pretty good indicator the land was grazed for livestock. Understanding that forest succession from the forest ecology episode is really helpful in following the histories of many of these landscapes. Most farms that were abandoned were done so as the land was used up. That is, the topsoil no longer produced enough and inputs were more expensive than what the return was on it. These soils, in short, were destroyed. If you recall, destroyed topsoils provide a great place for quick-growing annuals because the perennials have been killed off, whether by compaction or lack of nutrients or both, and these annuals are commonly known as, mostly, weeds. The weeds cover the land while perennials begin to spring up again, which protect the small shrubs that slowly take over and give way to the fast-rising trees of the early forest stage succession. One of the things we didn't talk about in the forest succession episode is why sometimes those early forests are largely one species or another, or a mix, and, well, there is a reason. If you spend any time outdoors, you might be aware that many species of trees will have what's called, quote-unquote, mast years, during which, say, oaks drop significantly more acorns on the ground than in the previous few years. The purpose of this, an entire region of trees dropping more acorns in one year together, is simple. They drop so many acorns that there's no way the animals can eat them all. It guarantees new saplings the following year. Part of those early stage species requirements to be successful is high sunlight and, ideally, minimal grazing. What we will see in these old pastures in particular is that the trees that spring up within a juniper become protected from grazing because the juniper isn't palatable allowing the tree to get past its most vulnerable stage and to eventually grow large. If you've got fruit trees, then you can appreciate this because there's nothing more frustrating than trying to protect new fruit trees from local deer. It's amazing any tree survives. If we understand that trees mostly survive based on having protection from grazers and mast years, that means likely multiple large junipers in a region meaning a long, exhaustive, overgrazing period since junipers grow slowly, and that the trees likely had seeds from multiple mast years in order to get different species to flow into the field. If the field is primarily, say, sugar maple, then we know there wasn't enough time for multiple species to have mast years to drop their seeds and allow them to spring up. Now, if you're interested in why so much of New England in particular was cleared for pasture, look up the story of Merino sheep in the 19th century. It's an interesting history, but not really for here given the time constraints. If you really want to hear us talk about it, we can do a prologue. Let us know. For now, the key piece of information to know is that by the middle of the 19th century, nearly 80% of New England was cleared for agriculture. Yeah, that's a lot. That's not including residential or commercial space. And that's why the rock walls became so common. There weren't enough trees left for fencing. It's been argued that the stone walls of New England should actually be one of the wonders of the world. There's so much of it. 
While much of reading the impacts of the landscape comes from agricultural production, in many parts of the country it's not hard to find evidence of logging, even if that might not sound like something going on around you. We can start the conversation by talking simply about stumps. How can you tell what kind of tree was growing when all that's left is a stump? The first giveaway about a tree can come from whether or not sprouts shoot up from the stump. We can eliminate a lot of species by just starting there. If the stump doesn't have sprouts, we can confirm the species options by looking at the pattern of how it is rotting. Coniferous trees, that is, pines, hemlocks, and spruces, decay from the outside of the stump inwards. And there's a reason for that. It has to do with how these trees grow, and if you deal with pine for firewood at all, this will make a lot of sense. The sapwood, that is, the outer zone of the tree's trunk, is full of resinous sap. To move this sap up and down the tree, large porous holes run the length of the tree. The heartwood that runs through the center of the tree is more dense with less storage of sugars and smaller holes, which means less nutrients for bugs and less water penetration for rot. This becomes super obvious if you've ever, say, cut down a pine tree. White pine in particular will have a ring of porous holes that are extremely evident, large enough to fit a toothpick into. While the sapwood is not rot-resistant, the bark of most coniferous trees is fairly resilient. These trees tend to do well in fire-prone areas, and their bark is thick and tough. Oftentimes, at the very end of the decomposition process, the only way you'll know a conifer was there is a piece of bark standing like a sharp rock sticking up from the ground. Hardwoods, which are not necessarily harder wood, but is just another name for deciduous trees, these trees that lose their leaves seasonally, tend to be more rot-prone. These stumps will rot uniformly, will usually leave little to no mark of their existence within 30 years. The exception to this rule is rot-resistant hardwoods, the most notable being oak, locust, and chestnut. All of these trees, in this case, not only can be found across the entire continent fairly consistently, or at least had been in the case of chestnuts, but they are also aggressive coppicing species, so often these stumps will have trees growing around their rings. These trees rot from the inside out, and often will show cracks that run from the inside of the stump outwards from the wood shrinking. With these coppicing species, we can estimate the size of the original tree by following the central location of the new sprouts that shoot up and make a circle around that pattern. For me, there's a spot in my backyard behind my shed where a four-foot diameter trunk is almost entirely rotted out. The center is gone, and two towering oak shoots spring up from its edge, likely 80 years old or so. The math checks out when I think about it because the highway behind my house was put in right around then, and the giant drop-off in my backyard is from the state taking the topsoil and scraping down everything for the highway. That drop-off is about 100 feet behind the shed, so it makes a lot of sense that the tree was likely taken down then. Based on the diameter of the stump and where that ring of trees is, the tree itself was originally maybe 150 to 200 years old, putting that root ball itself around 280 years old, meaning the acorn that sprouted into that original tree was probably from the middle of the 1700s. This is pretty cool, right? 
So one of the things you can identify pretty quickly when it comes to cut down trees is why it was cut down. If the trunk was left to rot on the ground, you'll notice that in whichever direction the tree fell, the trunk is either still there or there may be a line of similarly aged trees where the trunk once stood. These trees often quickly spring up from the body of the tree as seeds fall and draw their nutrients from the fallen tree while also being protected from the environment. Further, with the tree on the ground, there is now opened up space in the canopy for new trees to spring towards. If there's no evidence of the tree's trunk, that means the tree was probably logged. It's hard to imagine massive logging operations where trees seem like they've always stood, but in much of the Northeast, a second wave of logging sprung up in the early 20th century as the trees that took over the abandoned pastures became big enough to be of value. If you've noticed around your area that all of the forests seem to look kind of the same, this is why. When forests are clear-cut, there's no longer different forests of different ages making a patchwork where different ecosystems can thrive. Instead, it's one monotonous forest stage, which isn't exciting for us as folks that enjoy the natural world, nor is it good for nature, which has different species specifically suited for different forest ecosystems. But to circle back, it might seem weird that if a tree was cut down, that it would be left to rot, but it does happen. It happens when the tree was standing deadwood, it can happen when trees show disease, or it can happen when the wood doesn't have much value for the person in the landscape and he's just looking for another type of wood and that tree was in his way. And of course, this isn't the only way trees come down in the woods. We've talked a bit about human intervention on the landscape quite a bit at this point, but for many of us, myself included, downed trees are a part of the forest landscape that stands out the most because it's the biggest impression when you look out into the woods. When a trunk stretches across the ground, tied to a ball of snarling roots, it's hard not to think of the crash when it fell, and it's even harder to imagine it slowly erasing over time. So let's work in reverse order on this subject, since I think it makes it easier to understand. You might notice sometimes when you're going for a hike that in certain areas, the roots of a tree bulge from the soil. Usually you have to dodge trying to trip on them. Sometimes this is from the fact that excessive hiking is compacting the soil and ultimately causing the topsoil to either wash away or to become too compact and lose its value. You might also notice that you're near a pond and the water table might be pretty high where you are. If you recall from the soil episode, we had talked about the importance of oxygen in the soil and when it becomes saturated, whether by compression from people walking or from high water table, and when it becomes saturated with water instead, roots can't breathe. Oftentimes in high water table regions, trees will keep their roots higher or even on the surface of the soil. Some trees do this regardless of soil type, so this alone isn't an indicator of high water table. However, oftentimes you might notice it seems that trees sit on really small hills, maybe 3 to 5 feet wide or more. These raised mounds are called hummocks, which are the remains of downed trees, stumps, or root systems. Think of it almost like a raft above the high water table where the saplings were able to access nutrients in the soil by running roots around the original downed tree, called a nurse tree, and then into the soil. How do you know that the mound is from a downed tree instead of a rock or a boulder or any other thing that could have caused an irregularity in the soil? 
the first giveaway is usually the depression beside the mound. If you think about a root ball springing up from the earth, the roots may stretch 10 feet into the air while the mound where they had once gripped the soil drops accordingly. While the hole does fill in as it catches leaves and so forth, it never fills in fully and a slight depression will continue to exist long after the tree is a faded memory. Needless to say, wind is the reason trees get blown down, right? I know, pointless comment. These blowdown events tell us a lot about the history of a site. Based on the stump's location, that is, the hummock, and the cradle caused by the roots leaving the earth, we can quickly assess which way the wind was blowing. Unlike deadfalls, which standing deadwood finally weakens enough that a slight breeze or animal or whatever knocks down the trunk, Major blowdown events usually happen all in the same direction. As you probably know, storms in your area are impacted by jet streams, and generally the wind blows based on the tree's relation to the storm coming through. As all storms not only move as a cohesive unit across the landscape, say, south to north up the east coast, but also in a circular pattern, meaning that the northern areas just above the storm will have a different impact from the storm than the areas just south of the storm. Tornadoes obviously are an entirely different animal, which fortunately I don't have to deal with here, but if you do, it definitely makes the process harder. The one easy indicator for tornadoes is that they generally snap the trees at mid-trunk instead of ripping out the roots because of the torque created from the tunnel effect. But to identify these pillows of former trees in the cradles from former trunk locations, you'll be better able to identify the history of the landscape, and from an agricultural perspective, identify areas with thicker topsoils, the pillows, versus, say, a boulder under the soil, where the topsoil may only be a few inches deep. What you'll start to notice over time and repeated practice is that these subtle aberrations in the landscape tell histories of hundreds of years. If we think back to the stumps discussion, if, say, a hardwood stump takes 30 to 50 years to decay, how long until an entire tree decays? Well, before we can even try to date the tree that has fallen, let's go back to those nurse trees. When the tree comes down, trees with small seeds that grow best where there's no leaf litter on the soil will quickly try to seed on the fallen tree. Birches, aspens, and pines are the most common nurse trees in the northern half of North America. Usually these trees will appear to run in a straight line where the tree had fallen in the landscape, and they'll all be about the same age. So if you stand behind the cradle looking towards the pillow, if the tree was pretty much straight, you should be able to follow the length of the tree as a handful of trees the same age all grow in a straight line. Now that you've found the tree line, you can estimate the tree ages, and you know the tree fell at least that long ago. So if all of the pines in your row are about 50 years old, you know the tree fell at least 50 years ago. So one more detail about these trees that come down during storms. When storms roll through, one of the interesting things you'll discover is that generally, the trees that come down first are the ones who peer out above the other trees. By keeping the same height at the canopy, the trees are more resistant to strong wind blasts, while the ones that reach out above tend to be the first ones to fall as they bear the brunt of those storms alone. 
Depending on the amount of canopy the tree had claimed, this can often lead to weakening of that top canopy, and oftentimes multiple trees will then come down as the storm rages on, or in the next storm. So you'll often notice there are multiple pillows and cradles, all aged about the same with similar nurse tree patterns. It might not be obvious at first, but after practice you'll quickly see this in the landscape. Now, you can assume that these seedlings don't spring up right away. Chances are, it was likely even a couple of decades before the bark had broken down enough to allow moss and ultimately the seedlings to have access to the nutrients to sprout from the nurse tree. Now, you've at least got a 10-year window to identify when the tree was likely coming down, and a quick Google search can point to the largest storms during that period. Further, by knowing the direction the wind was blowing, you can pare that information down to which storms met those requirements or the location. If a storm hit, say, Boston, were you far enough north or south from it for the prevailing winds to cause that tree to blow down in that direction? To me, as someone that's always loved history and bringing history into nature where I can experience a storm through its aftermath that impacted generations before me is a really cool concept. So now that we can identify the time period of the fallen tree, we can learn even more about the landscape. Let's focus on the trees that grow up around these trees that sprung from the nurse tree, particularly the ones larger than the saplings that sprung up from the downed trees. If they're larger than the saplings, then they existed before the tree had fallen, right? What species are those trees? If all of the larger trees are, say, white pine, we can assume that the fallen tree or trees were probably white pines. While forests are not homogenous, we do understand that in forest succession, generally only two or three species become the dominant species in a forest, and if we can identify which species fit that category of that time period, we can start to make some assumptions. In many cases, we can confirm this by looking at the patterns that remain from the nurse log. Now, again, if we think about what we just talked about, a rule of thumb to keep in mind is that usually fast-growing trees also quickly rot. Think about those pines. There are exceptions like locusts, but as a rule of thumb for birches, maples, beeches, and those pines, this is generally true. For all of those except for the pines, this quick rot is too quick to be a successful tree for nursing because of its quick decomposition pattern. We had talked about the differences of the decomposition processes between hardwoods and softwoods. Hardwoods rot from the inside out, while softwoods rot from the outside in. Which one do you think is likely to be a better host for seedlings and mosses? Probably the ones that rot from the outside in, right? So trees like hemlock and pine will quickly decompose its sapwood, which allows for moss to take over and provide a warm, wet environment for those seeds to fall and sprout new trees. Now, I want to circle back to this conversation we had started about exposed roots. While a high water table is reason for roots to be exposed, one thing you might notice is that often, the nurse log has all but disappeared. A trunk that may have been two feet or more in diameter has broken down into the soil and appears to be nothing more than maybe a subtle shift in the landscape that you might not even be able to notice. While the roots are malleable enough while underground to slowly evolve with the drop in the landscape, they will often burst from the landscape floor and can be a clear indicator of a nurse log. 
Lastly, we can roughly confirm the size of the fallen tree by looking for evidence. Trees like pines and hemlocks, conifers that rot from the outside in, generally rot at a slightly faster rate than the rate they grow. With a sharp pole, you should be able to stick it right through the ground where the nurse log once stood. You know there wouldn't be any rocks in the way. If you're hitting something hard, you're hitting that heartwood from the tree. We can assume based on our understanding of how the canopy shields smaller trees from the brunt of the storm that the nurse tree was larger than the trees around us, and we now know how old the trees that sprung from our nurse log were, so does the presence or absence of heartwood confirm our assumptions? Let's use a quick example from a tree in my backyard. We find a pillow in cradle and a handful of smaller white pines that stretch north from this formation, showing evidence of a nurse log. The white pines are about 60 years old, and large towering pines over 100 years old shoot up from around us. We can safely assume the nurse log was a white pine tree that came down probably 80 years ago or so. We know this because the pines that are 60 years old probably took a decade or two to start growing from that nurse log. That's just around 1940, so it was probably the storm of 1938, which was the worst hurricane to ever hit New England. Not only can I tell by its age, but the storm ran to the west of my region, which isn't fairly common, and hurricanes spin counterclockwise in the northern hemisphere, meaning a storm to my west is blowing south to north, this tree fell in that direction. Because the tree was above or a part of the top canopy, I know it was at least 40 years old when it came down. Using one of my grounding rods from an electric fence, I pushed it through the ground recently to estimate the tree age, and I didn't hit any heartwood, meaning not only had it fully decomposed, but since the storm was 80 years ago, the tree was probably less than 60 years old, using the estimated time it would take the pine tree to rot, but at least 40 years old, since that's how old the remaining trees were that cover the canopy today. Those 100-year trees 60 years ago were 40 years old. It's kind of like finding X in an algebra class, which... I failed in high school. Twice. Well, that's not totally true. I dropped out of it the second time. Maybe if we had done stuff like this, I wouldn't have. And you can go further down the rabbit hole. If the tree was, say, 60 or so years old, that means it seeded in 1880-ish, which is interesting because if we think about that history of the landscape here, in the middle of the 19th century was when many farms were abandoned as the sheep craze of the early 19th century ended, suggesting that the nurse tree may have been one of the first trees that sprung up from one of those old last pasture fields of the early 19th century merino sheep rush. So yeah, by identifying a hump in the ground, you can uncover 200 years of history. It's pretty cool, right? The last thing I want to bring up on this subject stems around a much more pragmatic understanding of reading the landscape, and that relates to the land itself. I know a lot of folks want to test for this and that, and I've hinted in previous episodes that these tests aren't always necessary. They are absolutely useful, and if you can afford them, go for it, but if not, there are workarounds. People have been farming for thousands of years without these technologies, and we can continue to work just like them as long as we understand how the landscape is around us. And this is a fundamental problem I see in a lot of modern agriculture, is people want to be farmers or permaculturalists or whatever it might be, but they don't want to take the time to understand the ecological components 
that aren't necessarily a part of agriculture. This holistic understanding is what our ancestors did, and it's what we need to do to be good stewards of the land. We can do simple assessments like looking for those eco-indicators, those species that have specific requirements for survival, which are generally very useful in making quick, rough assessments of the landscape. Species like ferns are often indicators for high moisture and nutrient content in the soil. If you enjoy fiddleheads or have at least heard of them, there are the new shoots of ostrich ferns. And by identifying the conditions they need, you can increase your likelihood of finding them. These eco-indicators usually have a very narrow requirement for survival for a specific thing, whether it's pH, shade, water, minerals, and so on. By tying these eco-indicators in with things we learned in the forest succession episodes, you can quickly increase your knowledge of your landscape, increase the likelihood of foraging successfully, and increase your likelihood of hunting for specific species by identifying the plants in their diet. However, there is one specific thing that's worth keeping in mind, and not only can it explain human interference, but also the changes of a site's history, and that is germination niche. What this means is that certain species often need a very specific set of circumstances to germinate, but if they're transplanted, they can do fine. This is why many species that litter landscapes never have new seeds germinate nearby. The conditions of the site will not provide the necessary environment for seeds to germinate, despite the fact the tree might thrive. Generalists, on the other hand, can generally survive in a broad range of conditions. Oaks, red maples, and pines can be found almost everywhere across the continent, although pines will quickly take over sandier, lower pH regions because of less competition. However, specific varieties thrive in specific conditions. White oaks, because of their thick bark, tend to do better in fire-prone areas and are more willing to deal with drier conditions than red oaks. This means if you see an area that has lots of white pines and white oaks, it's a good sign that it's someplace that's probably pretty fire-prone because they both have that same bark and have survived, and the drier conditions tend to be common in sandy areas with lower pH, which again allows those pines to take over and your most prominent oaks will probably be white. With diversity, species are able to specialize and thrive in the conditions of every site and reinforce those complex systems by taking advantage of every resource available. Ultimately, the landscape diversity is defined by five factors. Disturbance, that is, that stage of forest succession, topography, substrate, climate, and water. We've covered this from a topical standpoint when we did that forest succession episode, and now we've dug into the content from the perspective of an archaeologist. And despite having spent almost an hour on this subject, we've really only just scratched the surface of it. So hopefully all of that made sense, and hopefully you see why it's so interesting and important. The point of this episode has been to focus on the natural history of our landscape and to highlight that it is a mix of natural and human activity that can leave long-lasting impressions for better or worse. By being able to read the landscape, we are better able to understand the forest or field and what it has to offer us in terms of soil, pollutants, water table, and nutrients. If you enjoyed this episode and want to learn more about this kind of stuff, the two books that I referred primarily to, again, were Tom Wessel's Reading the Forested Landscape 
and Mae Watts reading the landscape of America. And this episode just scratched the surface of that subject matter. So if you like it, go get those books. In the next episode for this part of the show, we're going to dig into Yalman's scale of permanence, which I think will make a lot more sense after this. If you appreciated and enjoyed the episode, please, if you do use iTunes, give us a quick review over there. It helps us rank higher in searches, and it draws new listeners into the show. The more resources we have available to invest in this podcast, and the longer we work on it, the more things we'd like to do with it. Recently, we also took our Patreon contributions for the month of December and donated it to Indigenous Regeneration, a nonprofit focused on giving tribal communities food autonomy and to help re-indigenize their food systems. So thank you all who have contributed to this project. And as always, thank you so much for listening. This is Andy, and this is the Poor Proles Almanac.